This is the View from the Couch podcast, and I'm your host, Pierce Wiesenar. And on the program today, I will be taking a look at Battle of the Bastards, the ninth episode from the sixth season of Game of Thrones. The ninth episode has traditionally been when the season's biggest moments happen. In past seasons, we have seen Ned Stark's execution, the Battle of the Blackwater, the unforgettable Red Wedding, the Battle at the Wall, and Danny riding away from Marine atop Drogon in Season 5. All were iconic episodes with jaw-dropping moments, but this episode might just eclipse them all. It's weird how Thrones always executes the big action scenes so well, but falters when it comes to critical character development and getting the small stuff right. Game of Thrones has always shown all of its bells and whistles to critical acclaim, and rarely in television is bigger better, but on Game of Thrones that is certainly the case. The Battle of the Bastards has the largest scene that Game of Thrones has ever put to film, being the Battle for the North. After the sour taste the Arya plot left in my mouth last week, the episode completely blew me away. Not only because it wasn't a steaming pile of turd like the one we got last week, but because the episode is among the best you'll find all year. This is quality television that only Game of Thrones could bring you because it's the only show able to bring such a breathtaking sequence to life. The show has a budget that is similar to a Hollywood blockbuster, and Game of Thrones utilized all of its weapons in its considerable arsenal to make Battle of the Bastards come to life. It's amazing, and it really does make you wonder how we can go from a sequence that was universally reviled last week to one that has garnered universal praise this week. But such is life in Game of Thrones, and to start things off, let's head to Marine. The battle for control of the city is still going on, and with a fantastic shot of a fireball getting hurled toward the Great Pyramid to start things off. Inside, the scene remains the same from last week. Tyrion isn't a general and trying to come up with a plan for the city. I felt for Tyrion as Danny just arrived a few hours too late there. Now she sees that there's a battle outside, and instead of seeing a city on the rise. However, when you look beyond the surface, their interaction doesn't make any sense. For starters, why is Tyrion getting yelled at by Danny? He picked up the broken pieces of Marine and single-handedly turned the city around. After she flew away on a dragon and her return date was highly questionable, Tyrion struck a pretty good deal for both sides with the Masters, gave her more support from the public with the religious movement, and the city looks to be rebuilding itself in ways we haven't seen since she arrived at the city gates. Tyrion did absolutely everything right but gets scolded in the end. If anything, Tyrion should be mad with Danny, but the show wanted this interaction and wanted to make it happen no matter how confounding it appears to be. Danny wants to burn them all, and it sounds crazy, but can you blame her though? She's batting 1000 when it comes to burning them all. She's always gotten what she wants and has never come against a foe that has won the war against her, but only managed to create a hurdle or two for Khaleesi. From Astapor, Yunkai, Karth, Vazdothrak, and I might have missed a couple of places in between, she burns, wins, and people tend to follow her. It was a great sequence to see Tyrion call her out for sounding out just for sounding just like her father, the Mad King. For a second there, Medi in the audience might have actually believed that Danny was going to surrender. It was perplexing why the masters would ever believe that Danny would surrender. Did they not see her arrive on a dragon? Because they got wooden ships, dragons breathe fire, fire burns wood, and you get the picture. I was also amazed how shocked they were that Danny, that Drogon got his money shot. 
What did they think was going to happen? Danny deals with her enemies harsher than anyone else on the show. While it makes for easy tension, it's a logic that is as deep as the kiddie pool. Once you think for half a second, you see how stupid the whole interaction between Danny and the Masters really was. Because Danny just can't lose at all until she reaches Restoros. Once there, anything is a fair game. But in Marine, in front of the Masters, she does what she always does. Make threats, talk a big game, ride a dragon, and burn them all. The scene where Danny's riding Drogon flanked by Rhaegal and Viserion was something we all wanted but never got before. As great as that shot was because it was truly magnificent. How the other two dragons just broke out of the Great Pyramid was pretty baffling. I don't understand how that happened at all. It would have been terrific to see Thrones give us book readers a Quentin-esque quest to free the two dragons. In Thrones, one has to take the few good moments with the many bad to get the moment where Danny and her masters, Danny and her dragons, burn the ships of the masters. I found it all a bit silly how Grey Worm killed the two masters and left that one guy alive. It felt like the show really needed to give Grey Worm something to do, and that whole interaction was based around the cool visual eye candy it would bring audiences. This is not the first or the last time this episode scenes would be built around eye candy and make zero narrative sense. The moment where Tyrion talked with that last master was fantastic though. I felt it used the considerable talent of Peter Dinklage that he brings to the table maybe for the first time this season. Finally the Ironborn arrive or at least appear out of thin air. Now this is something many book readers have been waiting a long time to see but something we just haven't gotten yet. In the books, the Ironborn are at the city, about to fight in the battle we all just saw, but in the show, they arrive apparently afterwards. I was a bit confused as to why Tyrion was landed on thick with Theon. Was he mad at Theon maybe for saying something about his height in a few seasons ago, or maybe he was mad at Tyrion for killing the Stark boys? I really don't know, or maybe it was something off screen. I assume that it was Theon making fun of his height in a past season, but why would Tyrion hold on to a grudge or even bring it up seasons later? Tyrion has never let people joking about his height get to him in the past, so why start now? I remember in season 1, Tyrion telling Jon to never forget who you are and to wear like a suit of armor so their insults can never hurt you. Or maybe he was mad that Theon killed the Stark boys. Is this something we're going to have to deal with every time Theon meets someone new? Because I'm already tired of having to listen to it over and over again. Because even if he did kill the Stark boys, why would Tyrion be mad about it? He never loved the Starks anyway. He just had his respect for Ned mainly. Plus, Tyrion is the last person to speak about killing people since he killed his father and girlfriend. Can't think of a one concrete reason why Tyrion had to berate Theon. It felt extremely out of character for him. But what was in character was Danny once again destroying foreign cultures. She has broken up the slave trade, burned the temple of the Dosh clean, and now the Ironborn have to stop being Ironborn in order to gain her support. We haven't seen the Ironborn in several seasons, so the show-only audience doesn't really know what Danny is demanding here. How Yara will go back to Westeros, gain the support of the Ironborn, and tell them that their entire way of life has to be changed is extremely hard to imagine. How Thrones will attempt to show the Ironborn's reaction to this news will be interesting. Also, the Ironborn will be forced to give up their independence and return to being vassals of the Iron Throne. The deal really isn't all too great for the Ironborn, who had dreams of having their cake and eating it too. But surprisingly, 
Yara is able to swallow her pride, understand the bigger picture, and make the correct decision for all Ironborn. It is better to live with a dragon than fight against three. If Danny returns to Westeros and wins the Iron Throne, which looks all but secured when taking a look at how all the infighting in the capital has weakened everyone, the Ironborn will probably be more powerful than ever before. If Euron is dispatched with, where will the Ironborn sit when it comes to comparing its level of influence among the other major houses? The theme of the season has been women taking over their various plot lines in the show. From Dorne to the Wall, every plot has women taking control of their situations. And to have two women unite to take back the Seven Kingdoms is the culmination of this season's theme. The threat of Euron is a strange one. He's a character that has only been on screen twice. One, the Seasone Chair by Kingsmoot, and his niece and nephew don't really know him since he's been gone for most of their life and only to return and kill their father. But when Euron announced that he killed his brother and king, no one really cared or batted an eye at the Kingsmoot. So why should I fear him or be worried about Euron when Thrones hasn't shown me anything to make me think otherwise? Once again, this is an example of the show having trouble with the scale, size, and scope of adapting A Song of Ice and Fire. We've seen it before, we'll see it again, but this is just another example of how difficult it is to bring these books to life. Certain editorial decisions have to be made about who makes the show and what their role is within it. Euron is a very different character in the books, one of my favorite because he is such a stark contrast to other Ironborn. But this isn't about how the character on the page is better than the one we get on the screen, it's about how this villain isn't given enough screen time to make me afraid of him or at least interested. So far all I can tell is that he loves a good dick joke, wants to marry Danny, and kill the only family he has left. What a guy. So having two characters run halfway around the world is startling because it makes little sense. There is one thing I took away from the episode, it was the expert cinematography of Fabian Wagner. We got to see the first person perspective of the men on the boats as the dragons burn their fleet from on high. That's something you just don't see every day. The scene where Danny was riding past Marine towards the battlefield was breathtaking. It certainly helped that the CGI was up to snuff as well, and the eye candy just didn't stop in Marine. And so it begins. After a lot of talking, and the false dawn that was Stannis' march on Winterfell, the battle for Winterfell and control of the North finally happened. Jon and Sansa meet with Ramsay outside Winterfell, and just like Danny's meeting with the Masters, this scene, well, it was an odd one, just to, just to put it mildly. While it made for an entertaining meeting between the two foes, with some fun exchanges between both parties, once you look a little deeper, you realize everything just doesn't really make too much sense. So before I go criticizing this scene, let's give praise where praise is due. I like that John and Ramsay finally got to meet after spending the entire series apart. I liked how Ramsay had heard that John is this amazing swordsman and that he won't win one-on-one, -on -one, but the Molten Army would beat the Stark Loyalist. Also, it was nice to hear that Ramsay brought up John's desertion of the Night's Watch, which is something the show has never fully cleared up. Are his vows over, or are he... Or, or is he a deserter? We had one scene with Ed and John discussing it, but it was never fully resolved. John just left and gave Castle Black to Ed. Both John and Ramsey had their own agenda and trying to get a read of the other while trying to provoke the other by tapping into what they care about most. John, he has his love of family 
and his love of Winterfell, and Ramsay has an ego and a position of power. It still needs to be said that that direwolf head, that is Shaggy Dog's, or what they claim to be Shaggy Dog's head, is far too tiny to make me believe that is is the head of a direwolf. Because the biggest problem is that when you compare Shaggy Dog's tiny head to all of the other direwolves we've seen on the show, it is minuscule. But by far the biggest problem of the episode was Sansa continuing to lie about the Knights of the Vale coming to Winterfell to her brother. Now this is where I just pull my hair out. This is behavior that is extremely, if not indefensible. Sansa wants more men as they don't have the numbers. I also understand Jon's position. There ain't no time like the present and no one else is coming to help them to the best of his knowledge. So why wait for support that obviously just isn't coming? I can't come up with any reason for Sansa not to tell Jon that Littlefinger is coming with the Knights of the Vale. The only thing I can't come up with is the need for that reveal of the Vale army coming to the aid of Jon and winning the battle for the audience. But I always knew in the back of my head that the Vale army is on its way, so no matter how bad it got, and boy did it get pretty bad for Jon and his army, I always knew they were in the safe hands of Littlefinger ex Machina. So the high stakes of the battle attempts to play up with everyone talking about how John doesn't have the numbers, how John himself told Melisandre he doesn't want to be brought back from the dead, how Sansa says she'd rather die than go back to Ramsay. You get the point. In the, in the end, it's all kind of pointless. The episode only works if you forget, and boy does the show try to make you forget that Littlefinger is on his way. It, if you forgot, then the reveal that Littlefinger ha- has arrived is amazing. But if you remember, unlike many northern houses, then you see it all just as window dressing. Before I talk about the battle, there is one thing that has to be discussed. Let us pour out some Dornish wine for the King of the North, Rickon Stark. Some people think he should have ran in a zigzag style and not go full Prometheus. I would counter that by saying he clearly ran far enough so that no arrow could reach him. Did Ramsay have the wind at his back or something, or some magic bow? Because no Arrow could accurately kill someone from that far out, but the show needed to have Rickon die, so once again, logic is sacrificed. But at least they did it in an interesting way, so I can't totally trash the moment. The actual battle scene was unlike anything I had ever seen before. It did remind me of the D-Day scene in Saving Private Ryan, from John almost getting run down from the Bolton Cavalry to the one-shot-esque sequence that followed. Thrones beautifully showed how gruesome, graphic, and gritty the medieval battlefield was. Plus, to have Ramsay instruct his archers to kill Stark and Bolton men in order to build that enclosure was savage. In a game of chicken, he got Jon to blink first by killing Rickon, forcing Jon to fall into his trap. Watching that scene inside the phalanx was breathtaking, if you know what I mean. But Littlefinger ex machina comes to save the day and we see Sansa smile. But I'm not sure why she's smiling though. She just saw... Her youngest brother die, another one is dying, and thousands of people are being slaughtered because she refused to tell John the Knights of the Vale are coming. But hey man, that reveal was pretty cool though, right? After the sad death of One One or Woon Woon, I go by One One. I have to give credit to the show for not killing him off screen though. We see John beat Ramsay within an inch of his life before Sansa arrived. I really don't know why he stopped before his sister, maybe thought it was her kill to make. It was just a curious move for John, but since he is so beloved by fans, maybe the show didn't want to have John kill him and dirty his image with the fans. I'm not sure why he wouldn't kill him or even stop when Sansa arrived. 
but everyone got what they wanted in the end because because Ramsey was eaten by his dogs. I was among the many that wanted to see that happen, but when it played out on screen, my stance changed. It felt far too cute for a show that rarely has such cute moments. And on top of that, Sansa left before Ramsey told John that his dogs had not eaten in a week. So for her to mention that to Ramsey was quite bizarre. But once again, let us pour out some Dornish wine for Ramsey Bolton or Ramsey Snow. At least he didn't die off screen, so I gotta give the show credit for that. I know many have hated him and for pretty good reason, but you gotta give him all the praise in the world. He was absolutely magnificent. It was pretty sad to see him die because without him and his terrific screen presence and his ability just to eat up dialogue like no one else on the show, the show, Game of Thrones, now lacks a true villain. Maybe Euron can take his place only if he's given more screen time in next season. Maybe Cersei will return to her sinister ways next season after her trial. There are some candidates, I have to admit, but I really doubt anyone will reach the heights that Ramsay did during his run on the show. The next episode is titled The Winds of Winter, which happens to be the title of the next book in the series. The Macers at the Citadel send out white ravens telling every house that winter has come. And in the trailer, we see a white raven traveling to Winterfell. In the trailer for the season finale, we see the trial for Cersei and Loras spotting a new haircut, the king and queen getting ready to attend the trial, Jon telling Sansa that they must trust each other now that they are home in Winterfell and surrounded by enemies. I can only assume that he's talking about how she kept the Knights of the Vale a secret from him. Jamie arrives at the twins to tell Lord Walder Frey that the siege of River Run is over, and a party that reminds me of the Red Wedding ensues to celebrate their victory over the Tullys. Littlefinger meets Sansa at their weirwood tree, and the two talk about what Littlefinger wants. Davos is quite pissed at Melisandre for burning Shireen and is screaming at her to tell Jon what she did. We get another shot of Bran, what I think is next to a weirwood tree. Danny lovingly looks at Dario. I think in that in that little scene that they have, I think she's going to break up with him considering she's going to be heading to Westeros and cannot be fooling around with a sellsword anymore. And finally, the trailer ends with Tyrion giving some advice to Danny about the great game and how it's quite terrifying. I am incredibly excited for the season finale, which is directed by the same guy who directed this episode. I can only hope that the cinematic quality carries over into next week and the many other stories that can come from the episode get some sort of a resolution over the last hour of the season and maybe we can get a return to Dorne. After the end of the season, I will try to do a season recap podcast breaking down all 10 hours of the season and taking a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of Game of Thrones. This has been another episode from the View from the Couch podcast. Thanks for listening.